0: Welcome to the Road Show. We're your hosts Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're gonna go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also gonna talk a little bit about riding. In South Africa.
1: My my brings home. people together, breaks down no
0: barriers. Alright, yeah, my passion winning to be the best. The best is something we strive Service. for. Passion. Passion, fiction, fiction. Gold. ultimate goal, glory, relentless training, pain. Pain. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to another epic episode of The Rose Show. As always, it's myself, Lawrence Britton,
1: and it's Jake Green, and yeah, we're really excited to be back, and, and this time around, we are giving you guys the intro um, to Noel Donaldson Part 2, um, and um, what a amazing interview. It's probably one of our first forays into high-performance elite coaching, and I think um, to continue on from the first part, it was, you know, it's refreshing just to have, you know, someone like that, someone so sharp technically and, and get a different perspective to um, to the rowing world. And especially someone that has coached some of the most phenomenal crews in history of rowing, you know, some of the most, um, you know, recognizable names in the sport and some really big performance.
0: Yeah. I mean, Jake, you you hit the nail on the head. Part one, we really got into the the athletes that he's coached, you know, uh, James Tompkins, Drew Ginn, uh, Eric and Hamish. And, you know, we kind of dug into that side of things. And then in part two, we move on and we look at the kind of more, the like intricate details of coaching and like, you know, what he looks for in an athlete, how he manages with emotional stress and uh, maybe injury and stuff with his own athletes. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Digging a little bit deeper in on this uh, part two, and I mean, I think it's it's definitely some of our um, most interesting conversation that we've had on the row show because you know this is someone who's not all the athletes that we speak to, even the best athletes have only really been in ro- involved in rowing for like you know ten, maybe fifteen, max twenty years. Even that's probably pushing it. Mm. Whereas Noel's been involved in rowing for much longer, and his depth of knowledge was you could easily see when we ask him a question, he digs into like this just huge depth of knowledge to bring out an answer that we definitely uh, haven't seen. And then also answering it from the kind of coach's perspective where we always talking to athletes. So I think it was absolutely amazing. and I think part two was even better. What did you think?
1: Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. And it's for once, you know, we, we didn't shy away too much from, you know, the rowing jargon and, and getting into the nitty gritty technical details about certain things. And, and Noel was the perfect person to chat about. Like you said, you know, we get a little into a bit about how to manage athletes injuries we get into a bit about selection into the, my probably my favorite part of the, the conversation is talking about the elements of boat speed what makes you know athletes fast you know what makes boats go fast and a bit about the crew dynamics, a bit about the, the physiological elements that go into that and um, you know all in all I think um, you know it's 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 definitely a really insightful conversation we had the most insight we've probably ever, it being given and you know probably give you guys into you know the you know getting down into the final details about rowing.
0: yeah I and mean, we definitely I mean we we oh, we love I love this episode I think it was so so bang on and I think we also now do the the quick fire questions in the in the part two and we added a whole lot more mm. to our quick fire questions because we knew like this guy Noel's gonna have so much more knowledge on a lot of different aspects he's coached some of the best crews so it was really exciting and we know from you guys as well going back to like the technical aspect of the the interview is that we know from you guys our listeners you guys like the row show when we get technical yeah you like the episodes when we're digging in that little bit deeper and i think this is bringing you exactly that
1: yeah and it's a little bit longer so you know the fire question is definitely a bit more comprehensive package and <clears throat> we definitely ask him some headliner questions there <laughs> yeah we didn't mince, mince, we our, didn't words mince and, uh, our words uh, we there. put him on the on
0: the hot seat but yeah, you could see he was a veteran he he hammered those uh, those questions back no, at he us did, uh, he did really. no problems
1: and then yeah besides that was, besides that guys um just uh, continue supporting the show i mean we've been loving the the interaction we've been getting with you guys uh, on you know on social media and uh, that uh, it really helps build our platform and you know let the algorithm um, get our get, out, get the the podcast out there and get more support.
0: Yeah, and if you're on the free feed, uh, carry on listening to us, share the show, uh, tell your mates about it and uh, and go check us out on Instagram. and this episode would have been out on the patreon feed for a few weeks be, before you got it. Uh, and our patreon group group and our, our patrons have been absolutely amazing. Uh, we've kind of got into it where we were a bit unsure about how exactly we were going to manage it, and it's really taken off with huge success we have a whatsapp group where we discuss it's always just a little yeah. bit of chatting and banter and then we have people from all over the world having good discussions about the racing and it's it's really exciting you know so that's always brings this new dynamic and we're doing uh the olympic, Diary. olympic yeah. diaries so olympic diaries just me and jake uh talking about ourselves our build up into the the tokyo games where we at? Where we? Where we kind of headed and where we looking? So, if you want some more of me and yeah, Jake,
1: def- definitely a more of a, a candid view into our, our lives going forward
0: to the Olympics for sure. Then go and head over to Patreon. Otherwise, thanks guys. Uh, every time you listen to the show, it's uh, it's great for us and and we enjoy it and that's why we do the show. So keep uh, keep listening, keep enjoying the show. And otherwise, that's enough of us rambling on. Enjoy the show. Cheers, guys.
2: Switzerland. Slovenia, Norway. Attention.
0: So, going back to to rowing and going going back to, to coaching. Then, when you're looking at a crew or, or when you're trying to select a crew, what are you looking at? Or say you like you you get put on the water and you get a first look at a at a boat rowing. What is like the first thing you're looking at? And uh, for an athlete rowing in a boat.
2: Yeah, it's a good question because I do believe it's a very data-driven sport, and um, you know we've we've sort of grown. Even in the very early days, you know we were doing biomechanics. You know we we were doing lab testing. We we were doing things. You know in the in the beginning of the awesome foursome days there too. So it's a, it's a data-driven sport at the end of the day. So you're aware of all of that. So you need to know that your athletes have got some. meeting a lot of those benchmark type parameters, you know, or or you're not in the game. So once you've got some establishment of that, you know, I'm probably a more, slightly more artful type coach in terms of what I'm looking for in terms of the boat and everything. Boat run, I think, is really important in terms of collective. But as an individual, it's probably the ability of how can we make two people work well together? How can we make four people work together? You know, what are their attributes, not only technically but mentally, you know, will, will this actually work and, and in, Ast- in Australia and in New Zealand and there's some changes sort of happening now too. Crews were selected, of course, by selectors, you know, people who weren't with athletes on a daily basis and um, and so therefore they're, they're making a judgement, you know, with their experience and very knowledgeable people but sometimes... You know, as a coach, you, you know more about it. You know, you know the physical, the technical, the mental. And so, you know, coaches probably have got a really good ability at working out, well, how do I work with this individual so that they work with someone else in, in a meaningful way? And, and the thing that you have to be probably careful at, and I've probably got wrong every now and again, is where you let your gut run too much or you're trusting your own ability as a coach not that you like a person more than someone else, but you, you have this sort of instinct that you think that athlete's going to be the person that you need, is going to suit that particular uh, situation and you're knowing at times you're probably behind the scenes crossing your fingers and hoping that they're going to deliver, you know, that, um, and if they do, you know you've made the right call and if they don't, you know, you're then, you're then left defending the reason why you put them in or, you know... Uh, or you might make an excuse for why you know why you why you put them in and why they didn't perform or whatever it is. So there is, yeah, it's it's not that easy to look at all the different parameters of an athlete and work out who should be with who and and, and what their particular attributes are, but. Um, in any given situation, any one of the key things of you know mental skills, technical skills, or the physical side of it could can rule the day in terms of your decision making about why someone should be where. So, and it could be the the weighting of those percentages could change with any individual or in any campaign as well there too. So, um, and and that's why you've got to keep an open mind on you know what everyone brings to the fore. You, know? you guys aren't robots, that's for sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah it's an it's an incredible challenge because it just it you know it demonstrates that uh, if you look at the you know the parts of the athlete and then the rowing that makes the boat go fast it's uh it's a really complicated story about you know what things go in play like okay he's really strong um but you know he's he does something in the boat that m- maybe is not Conducive to making the boat fast, faster, then you might have someone smaller, but is really good at making the boat fast. So it's it's a really interesting story of like, you know, what things go into the rowing boat that actually improve the speed, and you know what things might not be on paper might look really good, but actually detract from the rowing itself. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I think there's um, I have a couple of sort of ex- sort of anecdotes here in working with uh, um, Tim McLaren and a couple of other coaches in the in the late 90s there, we were doing some biomechanics on all the senior sweet men and it was a, it was an early season camp so it, it didn't matter if we got things wrong necessarily but um, after a few days of camp and we collected all the data there, we decided we would put crews together based scientifically, you know, what, what, what we thought. We, we were happy to be wrong um, and we were, you know, so we put together what we thought was the number one boat and this Force curve is here and so, and that strength there and, you know, and these were all good athletes. All, you know, athletes have been on the national team before. So that post on row strike, that three, that two, that bow, you put them out and you go, oh, shit, that didn't work, you know. And we were we were quite prepared for it to to fail on us as well there too so that was a really good lesson to know that yes it's really important to have all that information but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work and on any other given day it may have it might have just blown everybody away there too so I don't think there's any right or wrong necessarily in it and the other one would be talent identification programs you know the world is sort of probably historically been quite strong at trying to identify, you know, tall athletes and, the the right wingspan and the right, you know, physical capabilities and you traffic light them into, you know, green, orange or red and, uh, you know, you're always trying to recruit the kids that have got what you would seem to be the attributes that will make them a great rower. Um, But then along come the people who don't fit into any of those things and kick the behind of all of those people who do, you know. So so I, I think... It, it, it's worth going to look for what you think are the right type of athletes, but at the end of the day, you've got to keep an open mind, you know, and there will be other reasons why athletes will come out, come along and, and, and supersede, you know, the athletes that you think have got all the gifts uh, because they're just better competitors or whatever it might actually be or they blend with someone better and the like too. So, again, we have to be open-minded about it and give everyone an opportunity.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it was, uh, I mean, you are just talking about uh, when we interviewed, um, was it Helen Glover? And then she made it through the, the British Talent ID program, but she only just snuck, uh, snuck in on the height. Uh, she was actually under, the, was height under the height limit. Yeah, and she, team. I don't know, she kind of wangled her way into it and then is probably one of the most successful uh, Talent ID yeah. uh, athletes that they've ever managed to to find. So you, you're bang on there. That's just because you... Don't fit the the mold doesn't mean that you you're not going to have what it takes to, to to get into the boat and make it uh, really
2: really quick, mm. and yeah de- definitely I mean, you look at a couple of classic examples the Norwegian double tall skinny short wide um, Robbedale rowing with Nathan Cohen in in Beijing yeah you know, those sort of crews there that. Um, uh, you know, you think how could they possibly row together? And they do and they do well, you know. So um yeah, keeping an open mind is really important. Yeah. So
0: then uh on the flip side of like, because you spoke about the art of rowing and and how you're watching athletes and it's and it's uh, we've spoken very technically. Uh but let's go on to kind of the 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 setup of the boat and the the, the rigging side. So uh we watched uh, an interview with you when you spoke about how rowing was very therapeutic for a, for a coach, but uh, there's also an an important element to it and and uh, yeah talk to us about how important you think the setup is of the boat and what kind of the most important parts of the the boat setup are for you
2: yeah well again I think each in person is uh, is different yeah um, uh, I'm, that is one area where my ego gets away with me, probably there too. You know that, uh, and it might because I was a cox and whatever. But I like tinkering, and yeah. I like I like toys and all those things. In that video, you know, sort of talk about my hardware store visits and the like <clears throat> uh, there too. But I I go on the premise that if you know that the boat is rigged. Correct what you think is correctly. You know, if the, if the numbers all match up and it's rigged really well and the, the like, then at least you take that variable out in terms of why the blade's going deep or, you know, whether you think someone's too far off the water or, or, or the gearing's too hard and, you know, the ratio looks the wrong way around as well too. So checking it, I think, is really important. And, and uh, you know, some, some uh, coaches... Um, Aren't, aren't good at it. You know, it's just, the, you know, they, they've got their strengths in other areas and, you know, they, they could measure straight line and get two different sort of um, you know, marks, and I don't say that critically. It's just that you know, some people uh, like to be millimetre perfect and uh, you know, other people don't realise that they might actually be making mistakes when they're probably trying to do the right thing, but actually making you know a small mistake at it. So you wouldn't make them brain surgeons, probably those sort of people. Um, but uh, I've um, you know, I've always had a liking towards doing it. But I, again, I'm am a bit open minded about it, you know, and it's much the same as those late-night beer discussions about, you know, how a boat should be geared or whatever or what length oars you should row with and what someone else does and those sort of things, then um, y- y- there's no rights and wrongs, I don't think, that sort are of necessarily in it. It's a matter of working with, with it and it might relate to how you row. It, it might relate to the strategies, you know. You might want to gear a little bit more and, you know, and think that you might go out a bit quicker out of the blocks and that's going to suit what you're trying to do, so... Um, I probably do worry when the lesser crews um, and certainly sort of at school level and the like where they're clutching a lot of straws with a lot of that sort of information and potentially making a lot of mistakes and making it more difficult for the kids and the like there too so that part of my role now is in educating that uh, our level two course I run a rigging workshop and you don't get your level two unless you pass my course and I've got to run a couple of people who we failed for want of a better word, um, yeah, this week because you've got to set some high standards. You know, coaches, you know, need to have a fairly fundamental understanding of the mechanics of a boat. So, um, yeah, I think it's sort of an interesting topic and one that, you know, we played around with, and, and, and also the, the so that four through the make um, we also rode in the awesome foursome with longer oars than pretty much most of the world ever did and and that got carried through with Tompkins Gin, um, Gin Free, those pairs all rode with longer oars than Probably anyone's ever rode with you know, once since you know, the great Polish quad rode with long oars. John Dresen coaching the Australian quads that were winning silver medals. Um, you know, he went down that path and then came back in a little little bit. But you know, yeah, you know, learning from what others do, stretching the boundaries. You know, what's what's actually capable and the like. So yeah, I like to think I'm still pretty um, you know up to speed with what I think is right and what what I think may not be in that regard. Yeah, and then also there's you know
1: we we, get, we can definitely take the, the, the rigging and the setup into this next question because uh, I want to chat to you from a coach's perspective when it comes down to race day or race week. You know, we, we've spoken to a lot of athletes about, you know, what, what changes and, and the difficulties, the pressures, the nerves, how to execute that race on race day or, you know, you come into the Olympic week or the World Championship week, how to actually execute what you've been training to do and maybe from the coaching side, What's it like getting to you know the, the world champs or the Olympics, and then suddenly you've had such control over your crew and coaching them and training them and, te- and trying to get them to do what they need to do to win, and then you get to this scenario where it's race day and suddenly you have to push your crew off the jetty and you no longer have any control over what they do. And chat to us a bit about the you know the process that goes in, in into that and. The nerves, or maybe how to execute it right, and and sometimes maybe what you see coaches getting it wrong, where maybe they get things right in training, but they get to race day at World Champs, and you know maybe results aren't coming that uh, are you know alluded to in training.
2: Yeah, yeah, look. Um, probably fortunate enough because, you know, you try and think about those sort of things a long time out. You know, you don't sort of get to the championships and then make up what do you think the end result will be like. Um, I'm, I do believe in the what-if scenario a little bit, but I'm also a bit more of a glass half full and a half empty type person. So I'm a bit careful that you don't run the athletes through all these scenarios that if I'm not there, this is what you do and how you react and all of those sort of things. You know, racing's still got to have that intuitive feel about it. And, you know, athletes, you need to let them know that they've got ownership over what they try and do. So even control freaks like myself a little bit, um, you know, you've got to be planning that a long way out so that you know that the athletes are going to be bulletproof and that they've got not just one strategy going in because, you know, it might happen that it's not going the way it needs to go and, you know, you've you've got to think on your feet fairly quickly. So you're not... I don't go about sort of trying to teach that sort of strategy so that you've got them all sort of down pat. But, you know, you need to be able to sort of ensure that athletes are going to have the capabilities to be able to think and make decisions for themselves as well too. But, I mean, I I know as a coach I'd even do it today and even watching some guys that I was having a little bit to do with sort of on the side at the moment there, they raced in our state championships yesterday and so you You go to watch and there's a little bit of you invested in it at the same time. So you get a bit nervous and you think, oh, they're not in front. Oh, golly, you know, Um, what's actually happening here? And I think that's a good thing from a coach's perspective. You know, it's not about us winning or anything there too. It's about us sort of being invested in in the process there too where you should get nervous, you know. You should... If you don't care about the outcome, then um, then you've pretty much got it wrong. But and therefore, there's a bit of pressure on coaches to get that bit right because you can you can stuff it up quite easily. You know, you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, or you know, you have the wrong strategy going in. Then then you, you know all the good work that you've done over a whole period of time, you, you can stuff up. And and I've certainly done that over the times. And sometimes. I've clutched at a straw towards the end and you don't maybe have regrets if you think well, we're up against it, I think I've got to pull a rabbit out of a hat here um, so at the end you don't look back but there are some periods of time where you said, uh, I thought through it, it, was, it wasn't was just a guess I gave that call and I got that wrong you know, so, but there's learning in that, you know the, the, probably the more mistakes you make you know, then the less you'll probably make going forward because if you reflect on what that actually might be but yeah, I'm, I'm like everyone, and I like carrying the shoes down. I like to do all of the make life easy for the for the crews. I like to have the boat clean and tidy, and everything done up, not going to fall off too tight that they can never undo it when the into the regatta. Um, you, know, you might as well tighten the bolts five times in yeah. um, and once. and then but when you get there and, and everything's done and you've got the nutrition afterwards, you've got the plan ready for the recovery, all of those things are taken care of and you, you're there at the moment and you're pushing off, then uh, it's a helpless sort of pe- uh, feeling for a coach. But if you know you're well prepared, then you know your nerves turn to a little bit to excitement and the like, and you know it will be what it will be, but I think you need to be invested to that sort of period, and no athletes have that ability that they don't need you when they actually go out there as, as much as you want to stay with them as much as you possibly can but that, that's very much an individual thing. there'll be some coaches that are really really low key and whatever and doing just as good a job and got a different way about going about it. So I wouldn't pigeonhole someone in, this is how, as a coach, you need to be thinking, feeling, whatever, and saying one way is right and one way is wrong. But, you know, I I know where I sit sort of in that realm. So, you know, I think if coaches don't care or they make sloppy mistakes and those sort of things in intending athletes out or they don't have a strategy, you know, what to do at certain stages, I think, you know, you've let them down and you Probably don't deserve to succeed anyway,
1: you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then, so the maybe the last athlete and crew that I would like to chat to you about is maybe getting into Drew Ginn and his obviously was part of the awesome foursome, but maybe his his more the you know he's more memorable perhaps for his time he spent in the pair, and of course it's he's you know famously known for having that discussion of. Will it make the boat faster? And you know, when I, when we spoke to Drew, and you know, just looking at him, it's uh, it's it's very very apparent that he's incredibly intelligent and has a very you know circumspect way of looking at the rowing stroke, and it's very much about you know. You know, how not just the power element but how how you know technically rhythmically those kind of things how does it make it go faster? and maybe chat to us a bit about what it was like being involved with drew and maybe reflect a bit on the success that he had in the pair with his combination with obviously james tomkins but then later with uh, duncan free
2: yeah i mean drew has a, a sort of a, a wonderful adaptive ability um, both physically and t- and technically, you know, he's like a rubber man. at one sense away, he can actually row. And he raced actually uh, two weekends ago at forty six years of age and won a silver oh, medal fantastic. in the in the men's eight at the New South Wales <laughs> Championships. So, uh, and uh, watching him push off, you know, he he just had this innate ability to sit in the boat, take the oar out properly. Didn't have to stress hands; were relaxed and knew blade going down and in nicely, whatever and you know, apart from sort of being able to exert himself um, as well too. So it was sort of a good lesson for everyone around to actually, you know, watch a master sort of at his trade because he's still pretty fit. He's probably a bit lighter almost than what his competitive days so he rides his bike a lot and, you know, it keeps fairly fit. So he sort of had that rubber athletic sort of ability and but he's adaptable in mind as well too. Um, he will speak his mind though too, which I think is really important. And, you know, that particular... Um, uh, video will make the boat go faster there's probably caused more headaches for everybody else than it has for oh, him yeah. because, because he's um, you know he comes with great respect and and uh, you know people who are sort of idolise his performances whatever you know what Drew says and does one day might be something different that Drew says and does another day you know because it'll suit what's required at the particular time And you know he um, uh, Dick Tonks actually was a little bit Annoyed, so so to speak, at um, the influence that Drew actually had on mm-hmm. Eric and Hamish, yeah. Because the pair hadn't sort of copied the Ginn Doctrine until 2011, and uh, and they had a DVD and they gave it to Dick and said, "Here, we want to roll like these guys." Sort of thing, <laughs> and What he's talking about. Yeah. So Dick got it and threw it in the bin, <laughs> and. Uh, and so, anyway, but to his credit, he, he let them run with it. You know, they took some ownership over And the, the sort of the funny thing is, and it had that you know pause or gather sort of at the finish there, which Eric did, but Hamish didn't. You know, which was always quite funny. You know, two blokes that rode out of time for three quarters of a stroke, but oh, not too rode bad. the rode the key bit together. You know, yeah. so uh, and people miss that sort of thing there. You know, when they might say that you know we we took it on board and we did it. Um, you know, Not everyone copies everybody else, you, you put your own nuances sort of on that sort of side of it. But yeah, so Drew sort of said that, and you know, there's obviously that great debate at the moment, you know, about the pause and where that actually ought to be. But and the young uh, Kiwi 8 guys, you know, they, they were, you know, they'd listened, and of course, you know, Eric and Hamish are idols of theirs and everything as well, too. And and Ian Wright, you know, had done that with them when they were young and whatever. And so we just showed a little bit of video of Drew again in 2012 when he wrote in the four. And showed some. I had some because I was you know, involved obviously with the Aussie team and had some in training and um, Lago di Varese and had some race work and some stuff in Mwillimbar and training camp and the like. You go, can you see a pause or a stop there? You know, so there's an athlete that. At a particular time believed in a certain way about, about doing it mm. scientifically and had, was with a guy that had the capability of doing it. Um, you know, with, this is the, the Duncan campaign, but then could row with some guys that weren't as big and strong but had some touch and whatever, and they could row the boat a different way completely. So that was, you know, Drew, Drew Ginn's success is his ability to be adaptive and to move with the times and to offer. Great ability in himself to help any particular crew sort of achieve it at its highest level. So uh, the the Gin Tompkins one was um, that that originated with Nick Green being injured in after the nineteen ninety eight World Championships and um, a little bit of egos there because Drew and Robert Mike Mackay sort of in that in the nineteen ninety eight season and they'd won a silver medal. At the World Championships, and um, and then James had rode with in the Cox pair with uh, Nick Green, and then so when Nick gave it away, you know James was on the hunt pretty quickly, and he'd coached Drew at school, so there was sort of a bit of a synergy. So the. Mm. The Gin Tompkins thing came it was very much um, athlete-owned type stuff rather than me saying who your pair partner were because then it was really important that we found a good pair partner for Mike and, um, yeah, we sort of went through a couple of iterations for him and also for our four at the same time. But the Gin Tompkins thing uh, was just so natural right from the get-go, you know, it was something that they wanted to do and they didn't really even talk much about it. We just went out and did it and thought, well, this is a pretty damn good pair, this one too. So the, the 1999 race, you know, Drew spoke recently on a, on a webinar about that being maybe one of his key memories sort of in the sport because of the ease in which they rode that boat and that you know, was at St Catherine's in uh, in, in Canada and the, they had a big screen where and watched on the island and uh, the way the camera went at the 1,000 metre mark they came into the screen ahead. They went out of the screen. So there was a moment for a second or two. No one was in the screen before second place came along, and um, and you could in the room you heard this oh you know yeah, sort of devastating, was, and it wasn't quite that sort of like first thousand blast. It was just them you know just in their rhythm and moving away quite well and. You know, they, uh, James never necessarily finished his races sort of super strongly. You know, he did what he needed to do to win, but they were sort of well under world best time pace at that particular time and were only two seconds outside of it in the end and not super fast water necessarily. So that was a great pair and it's a pity they didn't get to race in 2000. You know, Drew hurt his back in, in training after that particular race and um, came back. They won a World Cup in 2000 in Vienna. Um, and then in in, uh, in Lucerne at the Heat, he rode the warm-up at the Rotse and went up and rode to the, the start and came back and his hand went in the air we knew and we were all prepared to put the spear in and, and we did and sort of that sort of ended that part of um, his campaign, so... But because they'd been so good, you know, Tom, he was recovered and repaired, whatever, they wanted to give that pair another rattle. And that's and, uh, that stage, I'd moved into a head coach role and Chris O'Brien had worked with me. He said, no, you coach these guys and the pair. And, and and so they, you know, did a really, really good job in that, that, the next cycle. They didn't actually want to race 2002 in Seville, uh, but I made them, for want of a better word, said, no, no, you need to get back into international competition yeah. again. and they, they rode reasonably well, came fourth in what was well best time sort of at the time um, there, but it sort of probably rattled the palms enough a little bit there that when they knocked them over the following year, it was uh, uh, we might go back to the four, I think. So um, okay. so when you're good, you, you can sort of dictate what the opposition do a little bit there too. So, um, so I wouldn't say they had an easy 2004, but by then they'd reassert themselves as the best pair uh, and, of course, you know, James was getting on a little bit, but he still sort of had one more campaign. And, and, and out of a conversation on a boat cruise at Lago di Varese with Duncan Free and, and and Drew, they had a bit of a chat about the future and that sort of stuff there and that sort of they remembered the conversation, so an opportunity got to um, uh, get with Duncan and Duncan's a bit bigger and stronger than James. So it's the, the nature of that pair then be, had to be a little bit different in terms of what yeah, they did and... And they weren't training it every day together because they lived in two different cities and the like. So, um, you know, a really, really good plan was put together by them and Chris and, you know, my job was to pay the bills basically, <laughs> fly them around mm. um, and those sort of things. And they they had a really you know, great campaign in that next Olympic cycle there too, which also culminated and Drew's back going again in um in Beijing, but getting through—you know, having enough on board to be able to get through and, and win that race—but it was a different natured pair too, you know, because if you look at the biomechanics of one pair, you're looking at the other. You know, it's it was su- yeah. su- sufficiently different. But again, Drew's ability to adapt to um, to the partner and row that that particular way, and and then he has a you know a final campaign coming back again and rowing with some young guys in a four and. And getting a silver medal, so, you know, an outstanding career, uh, you know, and, and adaptable all the way through. Yeah, I mean, Drew spoke about it a lot,
0: about the difference between those two pairs and, like, how technical and smooth and, and easy holding race uh, race speed was with Tompkins and then with uh, with Free getting in the boat with, with Duncan Free was just so much more powerful and, like, their top speed was much quicker, yeah. even though they had to finesse a lot more and I mean like I, you can watch uh, any races with either of those combinations and there's differences but they're both rowing really long really smooth awesome strokes but the question I have is about the injury. so like obviously Drew is suffering like huge injuries and missing home Olympics uh, from the one injury and then struggling through Beijing with the with the other one how do you deal with kind of big setbacks like that with your with athletes and like how do you kind of manage their I don't know, motivational expectations when they're going through injuries? Or how do you... Sorry. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. Or how do you... Um, and, and maybe also on the other side, like when it's selection and you have to kind of cut athletes off the team or, you know, choose, choose crews, how do you deal with the, the kind of harder side of, or at least from the athlete's point of view, the harder side of, of uh, elite sport?
2: Yeah I look at the first thing is if you don't understand the emotions of it for for like from your guy's perspective there too then then you you get it wrong, you know, completely and utterly. And um, you know you, you're invested so much in it there, and and likewise your families are. You know, towards the end when perhaps you know you might be married with kids, whatever. You know, it's it's a journey that you have to have a really clear understanding and appreciation for. You know, everyone's investment and in time and the emotive sort of side of it. And if you get too callous with it, then um, then that that ends up that can end up really. In a, in a sad sort of situation, but um, yeah, there'll be periods of time where you don't think you know you can retrieve people back again, and the clock, t- clock. That's the thing about sport. You know, the clock's always ticking. The event yeah. will always be held. Well, maybe not with the, the Olympic Games. They might move yeah. the move it a year, but generally, you know, the date of the competition and. You know, you've got to be fit and healthy to be able to contribute to your best. And sometimes hard calls have to actually be made for the best interests of the individuals, but also the you know also the crews. But um, you know, generally, when someone gets injured, you know, you're looking at it say, well, what what's wrong? How are we going to fix this? What are our timelines associated with it? And for athletes that have earned the right to be there, of course, you're going to give them. Plenty of time to get right again. You know, we shouldn't be taking that away from them at any stage there too. So again, it depends on the nature of the injury and what's retrievable and what's not. And you know, rib stress fractures are something that reasonably common these days. And you know, you can put a, a stopwatch on it and say, well, it'll take about that amount of time. Have we got that time? You know, what's the effect on the rest of the crew? Who goes in? Who goes out? So again like a lot of things in the sport I don't think there's necessarily a blueprint about how you manage it but you know we the coaching staff and the administrative staff need we owe it back to the athletes there too you know because often you wouldn't say that they get injured because the coach's program whatever but you know they are investing in the sport and generally except where it might be an inadvertent accident or something like that there too you know a lot of the Rowing injuries happen because you're rowing or you're training or you're riding your bike and you get whacked by a car or something actually happens. So it's not because you're being irresponsible. I mean, there are a few that are a bit like that, but um, yeah, not 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 too many. So um, yeah, Drew 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 knows, and we had a wonderful moment in 2000 there too, where he was uh, swimming down the course at. Um, the Sydney International Regatta Centre as part of his preparation and they didn't want you swimming in the regatta course so they the security booted him out and he got really pissed off with all of that. And I sent the massage therapist who was a good sort of like friend as well as, um, you know, our, our massage therapist there to go and talk to him. He said, oh, he came and got me, said, oh, he's pissed off. He wouldn't believe what he's like. You know? So I went up there and said, what's the problem? And then, oh, they won't let me do this, they won't let me do that. And, so I, I actually said to him, so, well, whose fault is it that you're swimming, you know? And, um, yeah, we have been really trying to work on his, on his back recovery. And uh, it was a little bit of, you know, he just pushed himself when he shouldn't have pushed himself in the gym. He wasn't prepared for it. He was a bit silly and sort of doing it, And that's when his back sort of went uh, and the like. And, um, and I said, well, whose fault is it? and he said, mine, and you've been waiting to say that for months, haven't you, too, which, which was quite interesting there because it sort of, like, cleared air a little bit as well there, too, you know, because we, we were there trying to help him, but at the same time, you know, we have to understand, you know, everybody's accountability is within the whole thing as well, too, and um, we got him to the line, then we didn't get him to the line, sort of on, on all of that, but basically, you know, our jobs to try and do everything we can in our powers to make them better again, and luckily we've all got pretty good sports medicine people and support structures, and you know there's a bit more funding in the system these days. You know to be able to pay for an MRI or the things that years ago would probably ruin or rule athletes out because you just didn't have the you know, the diagnostic abilities, you didn't have the ability to work with a physio every day or whatever it might be. So, you know. It, it's good that it's moved on because we're 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 able to get a lot of people back in the boat again. And yeah. Lawrence, you know, you you're a good example yourself. You know, being out for a while and coming back again, and system staying with you, and those sort of things there too. So, um, uh, yeah, th- and thank God we do, because you know we wouldn't be able to tell the stories if yeah, our great champions yeah, leave the sport because they can't come back.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a huge element to the sport and. Uh, I think Drew's a fantastic example of you know taking the knocks but being be, being able to recover from that and, and go on towards success and uh, you know this brings us to the end of our interview and we 've got a recurring set of questions that we always uh, ask our guests on the show and um, they 're the quick fire questions so no, but uh,
0: first we have uh, questions from our, our top oh, listeners oh, okay, yeah. so we've kind of covered them already, but uh, uh, Jess asked, how would you describe the style?
2: Of uh, the, the
0: awesome
2: foursome. Oh, style. Um, there's been a couple of um, sort of rowing almanacs that have actually been written to that try and describe the variations in the particular style. But um, Tor Nielsen uses a word of the modern orthodox style. So the hands, body, slide, move at the speed of the boat, um, hang, push draw sort of rhythmical sequences so I, I, yeah it's it difficult to actually put an actual phrase or term to it but I, I think probably it's a pretty orthodox way and, and one in which apart from the fact that they're tall and lean and can row quite long you know it's not a bad model to actually start young people off with you know if the, the simplicity of it is pretty pretty fundamental in terms of what they actually do just that they had an ability to make it long and you know, leave it an athletic that n- not everyone can necessarily do, but um, yeah, I- I'd say it, it was a, it was really simple for want of a better word. And then uh, obviously our, our, our listeners,
0: our top supporters, only care about uh, your Australian uh, teams because then our other question from Ollie was, uh, how did you start the rowing like that? How did you come up with that style? How did the crew come up with uh, with with that uh, kind of trademark style?
2: Yeah, well, as I said earlier, it was is the fact that going from the traditions of an eight, you know, which is I suppose, you know, a bit more dynamic, and you know, if you go back to how people tried to row eights thirty odd years ago, you know, you're chasing speed, so you're working really hard. To then saying, you know, we want to row a different boat class, and we sort of come through learning to row in those days in small boats as well too, where you've got to have some touch and feel. You, there are some good examples of bullocking pairs along, but there's lots of good examples where they get free speed out of, you know, rowing really well. Um, yeah, so the, the, the nature of the preparation and the skills required to row, you know, fairly fast pairs was was fundamental to it. But then that really conscious decision to row you know, long, lean, mean strokes with, um, you know, really good acceleration, place and push and accelerate the boat. That, that was a conscious decision to sort of go down that particular path. So, you know, I'd, I'd say that's, they're the origins of it and um, and the rationale and the reasons be, uh, behind it. But I wouldn't say that it was strayed a long, long way from what they were doing before. It was just that you put four quality athletes in a boat together and you're going to get a higher quality return as well too. So then it makes your skills look like it's even better than what you know, what it is in one sense.
1: Yeah, and so that now brings us to the, the end of the, the interview where we ask our recurring set of questions. Because, um, Noel, you, we have you on the show, we've added in a, a little bit, a couple more questions just to, you know, make the best use of your time here. So the first one is, um, who do you think is the best crew of all time? and <laughs> Bond. Yeah, I think uh, that's, that's, that's the choice. I think we all agree on just based off the, the raw success and, you know, the, the way they did it.
0: So, uh, and this one then on your last answer is going to be a little more spicy then, because then uh, after all these amazing crews that we've spoken about, which was your favourite crew to, to coach? Which one would you go back and, and have one more session on the water with?
2: Um, yeah, th- this came up recently. Uh, the most memorable day that I've actually had uh, in sport was the Lucerne World Cup in 2018 uh, when Robbie Manson won the men's single. He had to defeat Mahé to be able to be the New Zealand scholar that year. And we also won the men's pair, that, and we'd won that regatta. So one of the same members of the pair. Um, and then so Brake and Murray won the pair, uh, and Robbie won the single the same day. Uh, Brake and Murray had both broken bones. Um, Tom had broken three toes in a water skiing accident, and Michael had broken a wrist, uh, slipping over, doing some cleaning. And... Um, and and uh, they didn't row the World Cup before because they weren't ready and then they won the Lucerne World Cup. So that's probably a, a treasured moment and um, whether it's the fam- most famous cruise or whatever, it certainly is a, a treasured moment. So it goes sort of over and above uh, and nothing, to, nothing less important than those Kiwi wins and the Aussie wins and whatever it is there too. But that particular day... Um, Probably is my, my most memorable day, the most enjoyable day in the sport.
1: I think that must have been as a coach finding out that one athlete had broken three toes and the next athlete broke his wrist must have been quite the, the news to hear.
2: Well, they were three days apart, so Michael had uh, broken his wrist and Tom and I had actually been into hospital to see him um, there and it was Easter time and one of the guys in the Kiwi 8 was uh, getting married, so it was his buck's turn. So we said, yeah, have the weekend off. It's a good idea. You know, go and just relax, enjoy yourselves. It's just out, uh, Tom's out in a biscuit, uh, flipped off and miraculous, you know. Um, you would think a harmless type thing there too and broke three toes and they rang me. And I was on a family sort of picnic mm. and uh, I said, can you ring me back a bit later? You know, let me have a bit of family time, not a bit of Sunday. And they said, yeah, okay. Ring me back from the Tauranga Hospital and said, you know, how much bad news can you accept in one week? <laughs> and I said, what's happened? So he told me there too. So I thought, hmm, that's rather interesting. <laughs> what, do we, what do we do from here? It was actually a blessing in disguise because we would made these plans to replace uh, Michael and... Um, and then when we had to replace both of them, so to speak, well, we just didn't have a pair at that stage, and it, it allowed us the opportunity of actually getting both of them back together again, rather than one of them while one sat out. So it was a bit fortuitous, really. So,
0: yeah, but it's it's not uncommon for us to to talk to the Kiwis and uh, injuring themselves just before uh, you know big competitions. Yeah, you know, often not usually on the bicycle, but uh, you know he's might
2: take on trucks and things like that too. It's pretty big, but sometimes trucks are even bigger. Yeah, yeah
1: that, that's very true. So this next one again, uh, maybe also quite a spicy one. But who is your most difficult Olympic athlete to to coach?
2: Oh, difficult. Um, well, I don't think it's it's actually uh, it's not probably right unless you put some context around it. Um, the most almost the most determined and by the nature of determination to coach is is Mike McCoy, who who I'm sort of working with now. He's coach, head coach of um, one of our performance clubs here in Victoria. And so I wouldn't say that it was um, hardest or challenging necessarily. It was the nature of what drove him to get the best out of himself and, and, and therefore his crewmates. And so there was a lot of tolerance to you know, his absolute manic desire to want to succeed and to really, really work really, really hard. Um, so he, he had really wonderful athlete support because they knew that he was a almost the first man picked and on board so sort of in cruise because, um, you know, he was a really key driver and he certainly mm. stroked the ninety six four there too. Um But because he was so driven, you know, you're going to be so hard on your teammates and the like as well there too. So there were periods of time where I'm left counselling two athletes because, you know, he's really, really hard on them at the same time. So, um, yeah, yeah, I say that in a really positive way Um, but, you know, for a – yeah, you know, good eight years of that campaign, you know, uh, uh, getting to make sure that we could sort of challenge his great work ethic and having the right direction was probably, uh, you know, one of my harder tasks as well there too, but one I have no regrets for or, or anything at all too, and his record goes without saying as well. Yeah, yeah. sounds like uh, my older
0: brother. So, uh, if, if you could, the next one is if you could race any boat class at the games, which uh, boat class would you choose? And I mean, I don't know, you can kind of take it either way. Would you want to go back and, and race a particular boat class or would you want to go back and, and coach a particular boat class?
2: Yeah, well, um, there's, a, there's a couple. Um, it, the single is the purest Sort of boat class in one sense in the world, you know, one person, one one boat there, and having, you know, Coach Robbie to winning, um, you know, every World Cup we sort of contested as coach and athlete together, but not not getting over the line at the World Championships. It's sort of like a a missing piece of a puzzle there, you know, to be able to, um, you know, to win the main race. Uh, still got the world fastest time. So to, sort of to be associated with that, something that you really treasure, you know, because it's just one person. And the other one is the other end of the scale is the eight, you know. Um, it's so complex and in 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 all respects, you know, in terms of getting eight people rowing well together, getting the physiology right, you know, getting them all on the one page. So I've, I've coached a bronze medal eight and I've had about 10 fourths um, mm-hmm. there too. So there's sort of a bit of, I wouldn't say unfinished business because there won't be an opportunity, so to speak. But, um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a significant challenge. And I really respect hugely the coaches that have been able to do that and repeat that multiple times. Because certainly been out of my league, you know, once since. So whether we haven't had the athletes or it's been me not having the capabilities of doing it, you know, it'd be lovely to have a challenge to, to actually do it, you know. And I never ran away from it, but, uh, you know, we never, ever, never got it right, so to speak, you know. Not, not to win it anyway.
1: Yeah. Um, and then next, the next question is: If you could choose any three people from any time and from anywhere in the world to race in a Coxless Four with, who would your three crewmates be?
2: Ooh. Can you put four or five or six in there? No, you can. <laughs> no, no,
0: no, no. You have to cut it to to three people because otherwise you are gonna have a list. Uh, we will have an having lists of fifty people coming into
2: their crews. Yeah, 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 maybe yeah.
0: maybe you could go with the the starting four,
1: in. But then you could maybe have like a bench. The
2: starting four in a four. Yeah, I, uh, I reckon I'd have three of the Aussie four and put on Nick Green misses out there, Sam Patton misses out there and you would slot Eric Murray in there, I reckon. So,
1: Fantastic. Good combinations he, the, there. The, the,
2: the, the, the Tompkins-Mackay stroke side um, was a very complementary stroke side. So when you're thinking, if you, if you went down the four individuals, will they make a crew versus... Where you know where your strengths might actually lie. Um, those two people in the same boat offered different skills, but collectively offered a package probably more superior than probably anyone else that I've uh, dealt with. Drew would get in there because of you know his his everything record, uh, and Eric like the same. Yeah. yeah, it'd be interesting to how you'd seat it. That's all. Yeah. Where, where would you put yourself in the stroke seat or in the in the boot? Um, I would always be the stroke of the crew, Because you know? <laughs> if, if I got tired, I could slow down, yeah. Good <laughs> <laughs> oh, answer.
0: <laughs> so, the next one is uh, what is, what is your favorite race of all time that uh, that you you I don't know that you call you keep going back to watch?
2: Whoa. I reckon Robbie Manson's world best time. Yeah, that's yeah a phenomenal I was. And you already
0: mentioned that, that World Cup in, in Lucerne as well. And those two races in the single are really, really incredible races to to go and watch. And I just, yeah, I can't believe what he does in those two races.
1: Yeah, the world's best time is a phenomenal performance. I'll make sure we link that down in the show notes below. Um, yeah, yeah. For our listeners out there. So the, the Which next.
2: Actually, if, if, let me take the floor for one minute, Jake, because I reckon that. How, how he, well, so he stumbled on it, but the way in which he was rowing preceding that, um, I think, is where the sport technically will go, where there'll be a lot more blending of the stroke. So I think the pause and the aspects associated with the biomechanics of the pause and what happens in and out of the front is one aspect of it. I know where the Dutch are looking like they're trying to go with their men's eight at the moment. They obviously haven't still got it right yet because they got cleaned up in the Europeans. Um, Some of the stuff the Germans have probably been doing in that eight there too where, you know, you're not, you're just, you're blending your recovery a bit more. The whole stroke cycle is about continuity of boat movement. Don't let the boat slow down, you know, maintain catch velocity and things. And Robbie was, he just hit a purple patch right there and then and, um, Carlos De Nare's on uh, RP3's website has some video he did outside the park hotel there. Um, it was just everything. was The dots was just so well joined together in both yeah. phases of the stroke that he was able to get that speed. He had to clip it along a bit because he's not a big man, um, but I, I reckon that there will be elements of that that will go. The people who understand it and can actually do it will be some of the world's best athletes going forward, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, that's definitely. I mean, if you if you want to look at a race and, and kind of put it put a race up there on a pedestal and, and look to how to achieve something that's successful, you definitely want to look at a race like that. Robbie's performance there, because that was that was absolutely ph- phenomenal and just a timeless piece of, of performance that you could go back and check. Um, so yeah. the the next the next one is this is this has been fantastic because we've got great answers for this. Is if you were in charge at World Rowing,
2: what would you change? Um, I give people like uh, you guys and Down Under, um, collectively at the moment, uh, rowing Down Under, you guys, you know, at times with with some of your crews, some of the great success of the Canadians, the Americans sort of, you know, come up here and there, um, I, I would make it less a European-centric competition and turn it into a world competition yeah, and that's, it's, it, that's actually a, a fantastic answer because,
1: I mean, now it's immediately apparent that the European nations have got a massive advantage over the, the nations around the world because of the COVID and restrictions of travel that, you know, if there's, there's any sort of racing that's happening in Europe before the Olympics happen, you know, it's just a huge advantage for them. And it would be fantastic if there would be some sort of way to get, you know, the racing more diverse and spread across the different nations around the
0: world. Too shy. So, um, yeah, this one is uh, the big one of uh, of rowing, and uh, you know the one question that everyone always asks is, "What is your your best performance on the two K? So on the on the ergometer. So, uh, I don't know if you've had uh, uh, ever done a ergo trial or if you you've done something similar to an ergo trial. You know there was some diabolical. Um, Schemes out there from coaches back in the day, yeah. and I'm um, you know, possibly even worse than the erg. Yeah. For me, myself personally,
2: physically, um, my PB on the erg is uh, just under eight minutes. So you know, being able to hold a split under two all the way, I thought was quite a memorable uh, achievement. Um, I used to always take the coxswains on over five hundred meters. And if they didn't beat me, then they had to do the 2K. Uh, and, and because I had 15 kilos on them, I would generally do it. But I, then when I got a bit too old, slow and fat and I got beaten, I never did that again. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't think the idea of doing a 2K. I, in fact, to be honest – Oh, I just – it's a stupid sport. Why would people ever <laughs> row on a <an laughs> home I've just got no idea. So whenever I get, jump on one for fitness now, I get about two minutes in and I go, what am I doing this for, you know? No. Why don't I just get on the bike and go for a walk, you know? It's a stupid sport. So, uh, no, nah, they're pretty <laughs> necessary evils, I think, actually, too. But – um uh, I certainly haven't had the same sort of uh, workouts on them that you guys have. So uh, um, I'm a bit of a wuss behind the scenes there too. So, uh.
1: Yeah, know the, the Ergo definitely is uh, the machine that will humble you very quickly. And I think it's, uh, even for us, it's, you know, it's a nightmare sometimes to get on that thing because it's the most honest piece of machine that you can get. The, the screen is directly showing you what kind of effort you're putting in. There's no hiding from that thing.
2: That's yeah, yeah 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 classic antidote for murray and bond is you know they're pretty good on the machine um and uh you know eric would always seek a challenge you know he, he actually had no fear on the machine and they was really analytical sort of on it for what he actually did we set a workout for them one day i think it was five um six minute pieces uh, on the erg and he said no no i'm gonna do five 2k pieces on the erg and we said well, okay, if you really want to. And his reason was he wanted to go sub six minutes for every piece. So if you did six minutes, you could have easily done 1990 or whatever it was. So his self-determination in those sort of workouts was, you know, because he liked pushing himself really hard. And on the odd occasion, he wanted to go for a world record and certainly make sure everyone knew it when he got it and those sort of things there too. But, uh, you know, Hamish wasn't quite as sort of happy, but he, he, he once he got into it, he, he wouldn't stop him on the machine either as well too. So sometimes he'd go, why do I want to do this? But you knew when he'd taken stroke one, you yeah, were going to get the best already. out of him as well too. Yeah, yeah. yeah we knew yeah. we were going to get a good answer there because
0: we were going through those questions. We were like, oh, you know, we know Noah's uh, coach and he's been a cox, so it's, it's quite an arbitrary question, but we knew we were going to get something good out of it. So, going on to our last question is uh, if you could go to the Olympics uh, for a different sport, coaching a, coaching a different sport, which uh, sport would
2: you choose and why? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, it couldn't be canoeing because, you know, we go one way and they go the other. Yeah. Uh, and uh, rings quicker than canoeing yeah, as well. way so faster. Yeah, way yeah. backwards. Uh, I've never even given that thought. Uh, I, I do have a second uh, really sort of passionate sport, and I played a lot of it. It was Australian rules football, but it's not an Olympic sport. Maybe it could be because the Aussies win. Um, yeah. <laughs> what would it actually be? Maybe hockey. Maybe hockey, you know, because I I, I do like game, you know, I love footy and and, uh, therefore I like like game skills as well too. So, um, and and that gives you the challenge of different positions and tactics and there's a fair bit of physical, you know, it's a pretty active game. Yeah, probably something like that.
0: The contact part of it is is quite interesting as well because, you you switch from. You know, rowing is so isolated, so focused on yourself to something that now you have direct contact with your with your, your opposition. opposition. It's uh would we'll, we'll spice things up quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Cool, let's, uh, yeah,
1: that, that wraps it us wraps up the, the formal interview for us, Noel. And thanks so much. You've, you've been fantastic. And thanks so much for giving us your time, especially so early in the morning. Um, it is always tricky to get these things to work with uh, Australian, New Zealand friends, but it's fantastic that we got you on and really appreciated your time.
2: Thanks, fellas. We had a bit of a false start last week, and um, it's a busy time of the year. Actually, over here, we're right in the throes of our domestic season at the moment. We've got regattas every weekend and trials coming up. So, uh, thank you for your patience at the same time as well. No, yeah. an absolute pleasure,
0: and that really, it's been so awesome to to chat. And you know, I know we missed a lot of a lot of different topics and a lot of different uh, questions we could have asked, but I think we've got some really quality stuff, and I think our listeners will. We we'll have a, a great time listening to this episode, so yeah, yeah. A huge thanks from us. And enjoy the racing. Likewise,
2: fellas, and good luck.
0: Keep rolling well.
1: Yeah, we will. Thanks a lot, Noel.
0: Cheers. Okay, see you, boys. Sweet. So that is a wrap of Noel Donaldson part two. And what an insanely cool episode! Oh my word, I still I'm gonna to have to go back and listen to that again a few more times to to really get. All the knowledge that uh, Noel dropped on us and Jake, what did you think?
1: Yeah, I, I love the episode, and I think my my favorite part of you know both parts, not necessarily in the second or first part, but you know he he talks a lot about when he talks about his experiences in rowing and, and draws a lot about uh, what he says. It's it's often in reference to the crews that he's coached in the past. You know the names like Eric Murray, James Tonkin, Drew Ginn, Um and it's it was amazing hearing him talk about those athletes and you know. It it gives you a a different you know he he gives a, r- a real unique um, look into the characteristics that made them so fast and it gives you a really good understanding about what they brought to the table and that's probably my favorite part about the interview is just you know what he says about rowing and how he how he references the crews that he's coached in the past and it was great to hear about that
0: yeah and I just always I mean I think it's definitely something we'll go into more in the future is interviewing coaches and these these big names in in the coaching world and you know. For, for me, as an athlete, the coach is invaluable. I mean, there's no way you're ever going to perform the way you have performed in the past doing it on your own without a coach. You know, rowing has this huge scientific element, the huge mm. technical aspects, and, you know, you can have all the natural ability and all the natural feel in your, in, in the li- in your life, and there's no way you're making it to the, the top of the podium with without having a really good coach. And I think talking to Noah really kind of brought that out. That made it really obvious that like this is someone who has so much knowledge and so easy to see. And yeah, I mean I think that we doing these big coaches is definitely something we can do. Yeah, go and on to. they
1: they tie all those elements together. Not just, you know, they they really do give you the the, the, the you know the circum the circumspectual
0: idea of of
1: what make athletes go fast.
0: And I mean it's very clear like you can see successful programs are all headed up by very successful uh, coaches and co- coaches that have big results uh, behind their name from from for a long period of time.
1: Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, besides that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, continue to engage with us on social media. We have a lot going on at the moment. Um, uh, you know, you can find us on Instagram. Send us anything through email. We have a lot happening on Patreon. We have a new weekly series called Olympic Diary that we mentioned in the, in the intro. So have a look at that. And yeah, besides that, share the show, and uh, your support is invaluable to us at the moment. We've really been loving the support we've been getting from you guys. So, you know, have a fantastic um, weekend, and uh, we'll catch you next time.
0: Yeah, and as Jake said, things have been uh, heating up for us. Obviously, we we in our final prep for for the Tokyo Games. There's uh, not that many uh, weeks before we we get on the start line there. So we're going to put this one out for you. Hopefully, we'll get one more out. Uh, before we race to Tokyo, Mm. uh, one more interview episode, obviously there's still the hype train and all those other uh, episodes that go along with it, but uh, we'll get that out, and as soon as the games are done, then we'll get back on, because then we're going to have a whole new group of stories, a a whole new uh, Olympic Games to discuss, and with new winners, new medalists, and even old winners, uh, people that we've had on the show will have new results, so yeah. I think it's it's going to be really exciting for us. You know, we we kind of know Rio and uh, London almost off by heart. We know we've heard about this regatta from, you know, hundreds or tens of different uh, perspectives. And now we're going to get a whole new regatta to dissect. And Mm. and I think uh, it's going to be really exciting. It's going to be a banger. Cool. That's it from us. Enjoy your week and you'll hear from us soon. Ciao. Cheers. We're out. Oh, Marion <laughs> Bond.
1: If the boat, if it, uh, you know... Ha- ha-